0: Hello, and welcome to Polylog, a weekly dialogue in the substance and style of the Sunday morning political shows, where we take a critical look at the policymaker, the politician, and the journalist, because each is critical and each demands criticism. I'm Brendan style your co-host and communications specialist in government, technology, and healthcare.
1: And I'm Naomi Soto, your other co-host and health policy professional based in California. Our goal for Polylog is to look at all sides of the Sunday
0: morning political shows. We discuss guest performances, the style and quality of questions by the hosts, and the overall usefulness of roundtable discussions.
1: Polylog is our attempt to find, praise, and demand constructive political dialogue.
0: Today is Sunday, April 11th, 2021. And boy, for me this week, I've got a ton of topics that we do not frequently talk about. So it's kind of new things and it's interesting.
1: Oh, interesting. I watched two shows, but one was not very good. So I feel like I'm pulling a lot from one show that actually did a good job.
0: Well, tell us what those are.
1: So I saw Face the Nation and This Week, which was hosted
0: by George Stephanopoulos. And I looked at Fox News Sunday, State of the Union, and Meet the Press. So Naomi, let's begin and start us off with Quality Questionable. What have... What of high quality did you see? Since one of the shows was a disappointment, why don't we begin with quality?
1: So my quality moment was a little bit of levity, a little bit of girl power on Face the Nation. So take a listen to how Nancy Pelosi started her interview. And then right after that, take a listen to how Congresswoman Liz Cheney started the interview with Margaret Brennan.
2: Good morning to you and congratulations.
3: Oh, thank you. Thank you very much. uh, As our viewers can see, baby on the
4: way here. Good morning, Margaret. Thanks for having me and congratulations as well. (laughs) Thank
3: you. Uh, I love having powerful women back to back. Uh, That's right.
4: (laughs) straight to um,
3: powerful women who are mothers of five i I mean you know (laughs) (laughs) and i think there is something to that in terms of wrangling cats no doubt that's probably right
0: (laughs) are they both mothers of five
1: yeah so both nancy pelosi and liz cheney are mothers of five and powerful women in the house of representatives
0: very impressive. And
1: Margaret Brennan, do with her second baby, leading conversation with them about what is happening in our political climates and all things
0: politics. Pretty cool. That's really cool. Brennan, what's your quality moment? So my quality moment is a moment at the end of State of the Union. Jake Tapper's aside, these asides have become a lot more reflective. And this one was really about the Civil War and its effect on America today. It was very powerful, and I've had to cut and clip it because we can't have the whole thing here, but I did want to play a few parts of it and how Jake Tapper framed this. At
5: around 4.30 in the morning, 160 years ago tomorrow, a treasonous South Carolina militia attacked the U.S. government at Fort Sumter near Charleston, South Carolina, and the U.S. Civil War began, to this day, the deadliest war in American history. A war that was fought over whether or not states had the right to own black Americans, to enslave them, to rape them, to maim them, and to kill them. Monuments in the names of treasonous generals who led this war continue to mar this nation. Military bases are named after them. I doubt you can find another country on this earth that has so many monuments and tributes to its own traitors. And that's because the hatreds and resentments of that era are still simmering today, still a force. Now, people aren't calling for a return to slavery, but they push The same twisted un-American ideas that all men are not created equal. You see these people marching in Charlottesville, talking about how Jews will not replace them. And then you hear folks defending them and defending the ones who marched alongside them. You hear these people talking about ways to only support the quote-unquote right legal voters being able to cast their ballots, the so-called informed ones, their twisted conspiracy theories about how immigrants are being brought here, some believe by a cabal of nefarious Jews, to replace the white working man and women. Those theories, those twisted ideas shared by politicians and members of the media on our airwaves and social media, those ideas motivating the murderers in Pittsburgh, and El Paso. They constantly demonstrate, these individuals, an impulse favoring authoritarianism, favoring repression, steeped in both racism and a deep personal sense of grievance. Though their discredited, twisted ideas are often shaded and diluted and camouflaged, they continue to occupy too many parts of our politics and our culture and our news media today.
0: So this definitely reminded me of John Dickerson and his discussion. Exactly. That was
1: the, that was exactly what I wanted to say.
0: But it felt a lot more direct than Dickerson ever was in confronting these issues. And Tapper definitely ties a lot of things into this confederacy worldview that he is laying out here from conspiracy theories about immigrants, to the incident in Charlottesville, to the insurrection that took place on January 6th, to some recent articles in top kind of conservative think magazines talking about how we need to reduce the number of people who are voting to those who are just informed voters. So he ties a lot to this, but I think he does build the case that that is kind of the root that the Confederacy was the root of a lot of this thinking that has continued and continued and continued.
1: Was this tied to some other story? Like, I'm just kind of confused how it came about or just from the anniversary of the Civil War. Is, is that that was the only kind of timestamp that prompted this segment?
0: I think it was that. And then I think it's also these new military bases or these military bases that are right, being Right, right, that too. And that, that was covered a week or two ago. We talked about it on a special segment that Martha Raddatz had. So anyway, very well said by Jake Tapper. Naomi, what was your questionable moment this week?
1: So my questionable moment was also something I saw on Face the Nation that really made my skin crawl in its indirect or vague language. So twice, both again in the interview with Speaker Nancy Pelosi and Congresswoman Liz Cheney. Margaret Brennan asked about Congressman Gates from Florida, who is under investigation for several issues around unethical, potentially criminal sexual misconduct. And the language she uses is so like non-existent. It made me I was so enraged. So take a listen to the first clip in the interview with Nancy Pelosi. And then in the second clip will be the discussion with Congresswoman Cheney.
3: The House uh, Ethics Committee has opened an investigation into Congressman uh, Matt no. Gates, as you know, for a long laundry list of allegations. Are you going to wait for the committee report? Or do you think it's time for him to resign right now?
2: Well, it's up to the Republicans to uh, take responsibility for that. We uh, in the Congress, in the House, have Rule 23, which says that, in the conduct of our duties, we are not to bring dishonor uh, to the House of Representatives. Uh, I think there's been a clear violation of that. But it's up to the uh, Ethics Committee to investigate that. And it's up to the Republican uh, leader, Mr. McCarthy, uh, to act upon that. Uh, behavior.
3: Speaker Pelosi just said it's up to your party to take responsibility for Congressman Matt Gates, who, as you know, is undergoing an ethics investigation. Are you ready to call for his resignation? Or are you going to wait? You know,
4: as uh, as the mother uh, of daughters, uh, the charges certainly are sickening. Uh, And uh, as the speaker noted, there's an ethics investigation underway. Uh, There are also criminal investigations underway. uh, And I'm not going to comment further uh, on that publicly right now, Margaret.
3: Were you surprised at these allegations?
4: I'm not going to comment further, Margaret. Okay.
3: Well, he is one of your chief critics, so I needed to offer you that opportunity, as you well know. Thank you for the opportunity,
1: Margaret. So, Explain to me, other than maybe it's Sunday morning and they didn't want to get into it, but like even what? still. That's like, garbage. There's no reason not to say that the investigation is for s- sexual misconduct, potentially criminal sexual behavior. And, and there are a lot of like tangents of his disgusting behavior. So if you don't want to kind of go into all of it, Maybe. But to be so vague to say a laund- long laundry list of allegations, that could be f- financial. Right. That could be bribery. That could be a wide variety of things that are not tied to his disgusting treatment of women, possibly a minor. Yes. And so it's so enraging because there is no reason to be that generous. There, There is none, except that he's like a white man who... Are you going to give them the benefit of the doubt? Like it
0: just. Well, you're also being completely useless to your audience who might not know all the details. Exactly. And you're also making it harder for the people who you are asking the question of to provide an answer that is meaningful because they can't refer to the basic facts of what you're talking about. It's almost like she said, oh, you know what's going on with Congressman Gates? What do you think of that? It's like. What the hell kind of question is that? That it's useless and it's useless for the audience. It's really bad hosting and it's It's bad a judgment
1: call that was yeah. done twice. It wasn't like a mistake on yeah. the first time. Yeah. It was like a very conscientious decision that was wrong. Just pure and simple. Absolutely no reason for it. Brendan, do you have a questionable moment?
0: Yes, my questionable moment is Fox News Sunday and the inconsistent fact checks that we heard on the show. So the first one was excellent. I'm going to play here. The second one, not so much. So take a listen to this fact check of Pete Buttigieg, Transportation Secretary for President Biden, and Buttigieg is being taken to task for something he said last week and that I cited on our show that the new infrastructure bill, the American Jobs Plan, will produce 19 million jobs. Turns out that's not true, and Chris Wallace calls him on it.
6: I want to give you another fact check. Uh, All of you in the Biden administration have been selling this plan as a huge jobs creator. Here you are just last Sunday.
7: The American Jobs Plan is about a generational investment. It's going to create 19 million jobs. And we're talking about economic growth that's going to go on for years and years.
6: But it turns out the study you're citing from Moody's Analytics says the economy will add 16.3 million jobs without the infrastructure bill and 2.7 million more with it. So it doesn't, as you said last Sunday, create 19 million jobs Again, Secretary Buttigieg, why mislead folks?
7: Well, you're right. I should have been more precise. The 19 million jobs that'll be created. Are more than the jobs that will be created if we don't do the plan. And it's very important to make this point. As right, you but just
6: 2 million, showed us, uh, Rooties uh, is not saying that we million. will
7: create 2.7 million. Yeah, exactly. It'll create 2.7 million more uh, jobs than if we don't do it. And that's very important because there are people on this network and others saying with a straight face that this would somehow reduce the number of jobs.
0: So they go back and forth there a bit. Pete Buttigieg kind of dances around it a little bit. It's kind of a weird choice on Buddha Judge's part here. But anyway, I want to focus on this really solid fact check, which we found out, I think, a day or two after... I think it was the day our show was released last Monday that it was wrong, and we tweeted about it. But I'm really glad that Chris Wallace was there to confront them because that's a huge difference. 19 million versus 2.7 million. I, I just want to say, last week, I was like... Scratching my head, why they weren't running around like both Pete Buttigieg and Secretary Granholm weren't saying that number again and again and again 19 million because it's so strong, but it's not true. So maybe that's why I don't know. It's very suspect. However, no fact check in this example. Now, this is Texas Governor Greg Abbott, he's a Republican governor. He was on the Sunday shows, or at least on this show, on Fox News Sunday, to talk about what's going on with the Mexican border and the Biden administration. Fox News Sunday, at least among my three shows, was the only show to mention that there's anything going on at the border. There's still an immigration issue with more minors coming into the U.S. than ever before, unaccompanied minors, I should say. Take a listen to Greg Abbott's first question and first answer here, and the fact that there is zero follow-up for the absolute garbage, complete lie that Greg Abbott says and cites almost like it's a fact.
6: Governor, let's start with the surge of illegal immigration across the border. In March, more than 172,000 border stops uh, across the state, that's the highest in 20 years, more than 20,000 unaccompanied minors now in federal custody. And there is a report of the New York Times, governor, that the government now projects more than 35,000 unaccompanied minors in federal custody by June. One, could it get that bad? And two, what's the biggest single thing that President Biden could do to stop the surge? Remember this, and that is one of the reasons why there are so many people coming here, is if you go back to the Democrat
8: presidential debates Every single one of the Democrat candidates said uh, if they are elected, they will have open borders and they will be giving things for free to anybody coming across the border. They were doing exactly what they promised during the course of the campaign. And this is exactly why we're seeing the flood. And the Biden administration was simply unprepared to deal with the massive inflow that were coming in, which is why they have so haphazardly responded to it. And that's why we've seen the dire consequences for
6: these kids, for the adults, and especially for the state of Texas, and it will only get worse, Chris. Let's talk about those dire consequences. You made news this week reporting that there are cases of sexual abuse at the Freeman Coliseum in San Antonio, Texas, that houses right now more than 1,600 children.
1: I think my eyes rolled back to the back of my head like three times there. (laughs)
0: What what the hell? Like what, what What the hell is this? That every def-
1: every democratic candidate, every single one of them,
0: yep, said that if they're elected they'll have open borders and they're giving things for free to anybody coming across the border. What the that is so insanely false. Not one person <laughs> I even said that. Said that. It's 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 just comically Wrong. And it's cited like it's a fact. It, like, look at the way he, he phrases it. Remember this. That's one of the reasons why there's so many people coming. If you go back to the Democrat presidential debate, every single one, no, that's not true. First of all, we watched every single one of those debates with every single one of those candidates. But, like, this is so wrong, so flagrantly wrong, so stupidly wrong, it demanded an immediate fact check if not an immediate interruption from chris wallace and i don't know was chris wallace just like not listening to the answer and he just moved on to his next question i don't know but that's unacceptable so huge huge low light there not low light questionable more than questionable that is a low light yeah i know from chris wallace and well, greg abbott i mean i don't know a lot about the guy but this does not endear him to me <laughs>
1: The thing is is that there's long-term ramifications for not correcting things, right? Because yes. then your future guests know, hey, they might get away with saying some insane garbage.
0: Remember at the last presidential <laughs> debate, Joe, Joe Biden He said, promised
1: us all jolly ranchers and we have not gotten one. And then you're like, I haven't gotten a jolly rancher.
0: Yeah, to hell with that guy. <laughs> but that's not true.
1: I mean, we didn't get Jolly Ridges, but we were not
0: expecting them. No, I got one. You didn't get one?
1: Well, speaking of fact checks, that takes me to my something politics that I wanted to talk about. And it completely floors me that each network has not analyzed the bill to properly describe the fiscal costs of different components of Biden's jobs plan or the infrastructure plan. Right? Yeah. It seems to me like you should be able to say blank percent according to ABC News, goes to traditional physical infrastructure. Blank percent goes to kind of more modern physical infrastructure, like broadband. And there's this, the plan also includes blank percent for social services, which is up for debate whether that should be included in an infrastructure plan. Like, that level of analysis informs how they talk about the bill, right? Yeah. And journalists should be able to do that. It's completely—I it, it, I don't understand why they haven't done that, and none of the shows did that. Specifically, and Brendan, you tweeted about this. Yep. On Monday, there was a fact check where they talk about the 5 to 7% of the cost of the bills going to infrastructure was from a Republican pundit who— was using false data to make that claim, and that that claim was used on, you know, was being used by prominent Republican thought leaders.
0: Well, I would say a false analysis, not false data, but a false analysis.
1: False analysis, fair. Yes. And then Media Matters, which is kind of a news commentary website, noted how specifically it was used by journalists, specifically George Stephanopoulos on This Week and Margaret Brennan on Face the Nation, that the journalists themselves were using that false analysis to ask questions to Biden administration officials about this plan.
0: Yeah. Analysis made, like you said, by a Republican pundit who formerly worked for Trump.
1: Exactly. So the five to seven percent of the cost going to actual physical infrastructure is not correct, but it's out there.
0: Way more than that. Yeah.
1: Yeah, it's way more than that. My frustration is that at no point in the interviews on Face the Nation, does Margaret Brennan actually have any figure to describe what the bill costs or what it would be going to? Take a listen to this first clip where Nancy Pelosi is rightfully upset that Republicans are using this false claim, but Listen to how Margaret Brennan responds on the other side.
2: Well, no, because infrastructure, it's about education, about getting children healthily in school with separation, sanitation, ventilation. It's about uh, investments in housing as well. Overwhelmingly, this bill is about infrastructure in the traditional sense of the word. We also think that infrastructure... uh, there's a need for workforce development in order to have the workforce fully participate in how we go forward and child care so that women can be involved in that as well so it's physical infrastructure it's also human infrastructure that is involved and the figure that they use is, is a ridiculous one to say that it's just a small percentage of the bill it is overwhelmingly Uh, uh, what the legislation is about and some newer versions of why how we build the infrastructure in a way that takes building back better means we're all going down the path together. Well,
3: as we talked about there, you have a a slim majority. So to keep the progressives in your party happy, they are pushing you to actually make it bigger, not to slim it down. Zero
1: acknowledgement about what the bill costs and how it breaks down into traditional infrastructure or not. And it's like, clearly CBS didn't do any research on this. And it's it's crazy to me since Margaret Brennan was called out literally less than a week ago for using that false analysis in her questioning. Like That would be a moment to clear it up. Z- did not take the opportunity.
0: No, yeah, there, there's really no work. We're not seeing any work done by Face the Nation here on this issue.
1: No work, and Republicans now have an opportunity to use the fact that Margaret Brennan used this false analysis. Take a listen to Liz Cheney starting her talking point that Margaret Brennan used this number too. Obviously, uh, something less than 6%, as you mentioned, of
4: this proposal that uh, President Biden has put forward is actually focused on infrastructure. Uh, the National Association of Manufacturers has said that we will probably lose over a million jobs uh, if this is enacted. Uh, and And you are certainly going to see, in addition to the corporate tax increases in the bill, Uh, you'll see middle-class tax increases this is a pattern that we we watch the Democrats uh, use time and again where they massively increase spending they massively expand the size and scope of the federal government uh, and then they come back around and impose middle-class tax increases so uh, those are not things that we support not things that I support
3: well that tax increase you're talking about with the National Association of Manufacturers that was losing a million jobs over two years it was specifically targeting the uh, corporate tax rate going about 28 percent is that an area you're focusing in on if speaker pelosi offers you an olive branch and says we'll go down to 25 percent for example i mean is that something you can work with
4: and so much of it is unnecessary six percent is actually focused on the kind of infrastructure that that there is bipartisan support for so mm-hmm. i would urge democrats Let's
3: focus on that. Senator Portman, Republican colleague of yours, said 20 percent of the bill, if you're generous, is on infrastructure. Um, You're you're putting it even lower at six percent. Which is
0: freaking wrong. It is factually wrong. And
3: why is your fact check
1: including the claim of another Republican as opposed to making the analysis yourself?
0: Yeah. Or citing other analyses that are out there, like the one in the Washington Post that did the work that CBS News has not done on this bill and Face the Nation has not done. Wow. Isn't and, that outrageous? Well, and on top of it, she's, Liz Cheney slipped in this thing saying, well, yes, there are corporate tax increases that have been proposed to pay for this, but you know we're concerned that Democrats are going to slip in a, a tax increase for the middle class because we've seen that's what they do. And there's that's no what's... fact check on that. that. That's not at all what's been proposed. And multiple times, a million times, Joe Biden has said no middle class tax increases. And yet Cheney is allowed to say it on the Sunday show on the network. Zero fact check, zero correction. That is 100 percent evident because there's no evidence to support her claim.
1: It's so like these aren't tiny little like (laughs) Margaret Brennan is with like she's one of the top political journalists at CBS News. Like I'm sure you have researchers and producers and people to help do research for you. Like, and that could be used for multiple shows across CBS News. Like, I'm very upset with Margaret Budden, but like, I, I genuinely don't understand why the networks haven't found language to describe the fiscal cost, the fiscal categories of this bill. Like, stop letting partisan voices direct the conversation as opposed to you giving those figures to frame it yourself.
0: Yeah. Why are you even inviting people on to talk about this thing if you don't know what it is?
1: And just to kind of close out my segment on politics, I did briefly want to note Jennifer Graham home on this week. She was on kind of talking about Biden's new jobs plan. And I had the same conclusion that I had last week after listening to your clip when I can't remember what show she was on that you watched, Brendan, that she is the best voice defending this bill. Secretary, energy secretary, Jennifer Graham Holm, put her on everywhere because it, I don't buy everything she says, but it's at least a smidge believable.
0: Well, and you remember when she was early on the Sunday shows, we saw both her and Judge on, and she was speaking with such passion and excitement and energy, one might say, about infrastructure. Yeah, no. And, and and so now that there's actually a bill, I think we're seeing the... But
1: I don't think it's just energy. That. It's like how she's describing it is compelling. Yeah. And the way Brian Deese and Buttigieg have described this proposal, I don't find convincing. Take a listen to how she clarifies what infrastructure is and makes makes it very clear and understandable about the Biden vision of infrastructure.
8: You heard Chris Christie there saying that the president is not being fully
9: truthful about what what infrastructure actually is. Yeah, this, I mean, what is infrastructure? Historically it's been, what makes the economy move? What is it that we all need to ensure that we as citizens are productive? So we need roads, we need bridges, we need transmission, you need lights in people's homes and offices. You need to make sure that people can actually go to work if they have an aging parent or a child. This is, you know, as the president said this week, that infrastructure evolves to meet the American people's aspirations. And it's not static. In 1990, we wouldn't have thought that broadband was infrastructure because it wasn't on the scene yet. But we, of course, need broadband in every pocket of the country. Bottom line is, though, the president wants to negotiate with Republicans, and he wants to see a common vision for the future. Chris Christie talked about talking about the future. We don't want to use past definitions of infrastructure when we are moving into the future. And by the way, when other countries are investing significantly in their infrastructure, to overcome us. Research and development, that's also part of a manufacturing infrastructure that we have seen go. We're at a 70-year low in terms of manufacturing jobs as a percentage of the economy. The bottom line is, Chris, we've, I mean, Chris, <laughs> I'm sorry, Jordan. we've got right? to move forward <laughs> Yes, I know. I am I apologize. But anyway, bottom line is we have to move forward. We have to look forward and we have to win the future. And this is the biggest investment in the future it of seems- America that we have seen in our lifetime.
1: Like that, I understand that I I can see that future, that vision that she's describing. I have not seen that type of clarity from the other Biden administration officials.
0: Yeah, there was a brief conversation like this on State of the Union And Pete Buttigieg said something like, uh, they can call it whatever they like, but we ask them to support it because it's good policy.
1: Like, you're not going to convince skeptical people with that.
0: Yeah. Yeah. She she definitely weaved quite a big, you know, interesting picture of what infrastructure could be. And I think this is the most compelling explanation of what infrastructure of care is that Chris Wallace was laughing about, essentially, last week. And we were a bit as well.
1: Do you want to share your something about politics that you saw on the Sunday shows?
0: Sure. I mean, the moment in politics that stood out to me on the Sunday shows was an interview with Biden Secretary of State Anthony Blinken. So this was his first interview as Secretary of State on Meet the Press. So this was kind of like the big Meet the Press interview. And it reminds me of what Chuck Todd said he tried to do with all the candidates who are running for president, where he kind of hit them on a lot of issues, tried to cover it all so that they kind of had it and could refer back to it in the future and this did cover a lot but i do want to give chuck todd credit on this interview because he didn't just go down a laundry list of questions he often had follow-ups and the follow-ups were meaningful and they were meaningful because you were able to walk away with the a general impression of whether secretary blinken was forthright and knowledgeable and willing to kind of come to the table with real answers in a real conversation or whether he was just kind of like providing happy talk and whatever. So here's one example that I thought showcased the fact that Secretary Blinken, like some other Biden officials that we've seen, talks a lot, but doesn't really say much of anything at all or make strong commitments. Here's Chuck Todd asking him about when exactly the United States is going to help the rest of the world get vaccinated, which is hugely important if we want to make sure that All of our vaccination efforts aren't put in jeopardy by a variant developing in another sector of the globe world.
8: You uh, uh, recently named Gail Smith, a a longtime State Department veteran. She's going to be the the global coordinator here. You know, the organization that she ran in between her stints in government actually has called on the United States to um, start distributing 5 percent of our vaccine supply once we hit 20 percent vaccinated. Well, that has (laughs) happened. Is that going to be U.S. policy? It was Gail Smith's organization's idea. Is that going to be U.S. policy?
7: Well, Gail is a terrific leader. As you know, uh, she was uh, instrumental as well in dealing with Ebola uh, some years ago and exerting American leadership to deal with that. Uh, what we're doing right now, Chuck, is, again, is we're getting more comfortable with uh, our ability to vaccinate every American. We're putting in place a framework uh, for how we will do more around the world mm-hmm. uh, to share vaccines with others. So stay tuned for that.
8: OK, um, but what is, I say this, what is soon? I mean, I, I look at look at our hemisphere. You talked about loaning to Mexico and Canada. Brazil is an outbreak that's out of control. It looks like what mm. we looked like four months ago. Um, is this an emergency enough that you think? And, and look, the Brazil variants show up in this country faster than, for instance, a variant might show up from Asia or Europe. What do you view as our Western hemisphere responsibility here?
7: Look, our first responsibility is to the American people, and the president's are very clear about that. But that's also a benefit to the world, because, again, we have to make sure that uh, people are vaccinated in the United States. That's going to have an
8: impact on whether the virus continues to replicate and mutate in other places around the world. It's a very vague deadline. You say as we there's a lot of people say we're there now. We have contracts for doses uh, for more more people than we have in our population. So um, what is soon is soon weeks.
7: Look, the experts are looking at that. Um, we have to keep a few things in mind. We have to keep in mind that we're going to have a need, uh, and hopefully uh, soon, to be able to vaccinate uh, teenagers, ultimately vaccinate children. We also have to keep in mind the possibility that people will need booster shots. These are things we don't know for sure yet. So all of that has to get factored in. It is being factored in, but I'm confident that we're getting uh, very confident about our ability to vaccinate every American. And again, as we do that, We'll be putting in place a framework to do more around the world. I think when all is said and done, Mm -hmm. you will see the United States as the leading country around the world in making sure that everyone has access to vaccines.
0: So vague answer there, vague timeline there. I guess a commitment that the U.S. is going to do a lot, but certainly not committing to anything, not even just the concept of weeks, which I really, really appreciate Chuck Todd throwing that out there.
1: Secretary Blinken was on State of the Union last week when I catched it with Dana Bash. And I don't remember there being kind of COVID questions. It was a lot of other foreign diplomacy issues, but I don't remember a COVID question. So good for Chuck Todd for bringing that important point, because a lot of times people think COVID and they think the CDC, they think the NIH, they, you know, but the State Department is going to play a huge role in the global safety of hopefully a post-COVID world.
0: I also wanted to look at this issue on the question of the genocide taking place in China against the Uyghurs. This is the Muslim minority group in one province of China that has been systematically kind of separated, put into internment camps, re-education camps. There have been reports of sterilization, mass sterilization efforts, and Really a systematic effort by China to destroy this culture of these people. And it is extremely disturbing. It has been labeled genocide by tons of organizations around the world. And yet the U.S. is doing very little about it. And Chuck Todd asked about holding Biden and Secretary Blinken accountable for doing something about what they themselves have labeled genocide.
8: You said during, I believe it was during your confirmation hearing, you said that China's treatment of the Uyghurs was, quote, an effort to commit genocide. And I guess I got to ask it this way. How do you justify doing business with China or any country that you believe is committing genocide?
7: When it comes to uh, what we're seeing from the government in Beijing, including uh, with regard to uh, to the Uyghurs and uh, the, the actions it's taken in Xinjiang, yes, I think that's uh, that, that's exactly Uh, the right description. And uh, we need to be able to do a few things. We need to be able to to bring the world together in in speaking with one voice in condemning uh, what -hmm. has taken place and what continues to take place. Uh, We need to take actually concrete actions to make sure, for example, uh, that none of our companies are providing uh, China with uh, things that they can use to repress populations, including the Uyghur population. Uh, We need to be looking at products that are made In uh, that part of China to make sure that uh, they're not, uh, they're not coming here. Uh, But we also uh, have to make sure that um, we're dealing with um, uh, all of our interests and what is the best way uh, to effectively advance our interests Mm -hmm. and our values. Uh, And when it comes to China, we have to be able to deal with China on uh, areas where uh, those interests are implicated and require uh, working with China, even as we stand resolutely against. Uh, egregious violations of human rights, or, or in this case, uh, acts of genocide.
8: Some people think a proper punishment for their human rights record is to not to participate in the, in the 2022 Winter Olympics. Is that on the table among Western allies or not? Uh,
7: Chuck, we're not there yet. This is, uh, this is a year or so before the Olympics. Uh, we're not focused on, uh, uh, on a boycott. Uh, what we are focused on is uh, talking, uh, consulting closely with our allies and partners, listening to them, listening to concerns. Uh, But uh, that's premature.
0: Basically, what Anthony Blinken's answer is here is that what we're going to do is say, we don't like what you're doing, China, and we don't want our businesses to help what you're doing in China. But we've got also a lot of interests that we want to work with you with China in China. So whatever. Like, I wish that Chuck Todd had said, after the Holocaust, we said, never again would we tolerate genocide in the world. It sounds like what you, Anthony Blinken and the Biden administration are saying is we are tolerating it. We just don't want to have anything to do with it. But Chuck Todd's answer is a question is really about like the Winter Olympics and punishing China for their human rights record rather than doing something specifically to solve it, to stop it. I don't know. It's just it just seems like it's not being taken seriously in this conversation.
1: I mean, I think that's true in a lot of conversations, not just with Secretary Blinken. Anytime there's a question around the economic partnership that we have with China and then the human rights violation in China there who whether it was a Trump administration official or i would say even a Biden administration official they're always separated those conversations are always kind of separated as like we're dealing with them concurrently and and kind of two separate in two separate strategies and i have yet to see anyone on the Sunday show really make clear. It's like, why? (laughs) Yeah. What makes these human rights violations not bad enough that lets you feel comfortable to keep them as separate strategies?
0: Yeah. Well, this really aligned with, and obviously we don't have time to go through the entire Blinken interview, but it really aligned with a lot of Anthony Blinken's answers here, which were... And Chuck Todd's questions, which were, what are you going to do about these bad acts that China is doing? What are you going to do about these bad acts that Russia is, is doing? What are you in the Biden administration going to do about it? You know, you say there, there are these lines like Taiwan, we're going to defend Taiwan. Well, what if something happens in Taiwan? What are you really willing to do? And his answer is just, well, here's how Helen Cooper describes it in the panel, which I thought she described it really well. And I should say, Helen Cooper is a Pentagon correspondent for The New York Times. And interestingly, the panel, it was all journalists on Meet the Press this week, which is excellent.
8: Helene, I want to start with you. I want to do a little uh, sort of digestion here of what we just heard from Secretary Blinken. And I want to start with you on, on his comments about Taiwan. And what are you, what is the Pentagon doing right now as they prepare to deal with whatever it is China's, uh, thinking about doing with Taiwan.
10: Uh, hey, Chuck. Uh, they're doing a lot of talking. I mean, I think the administration, as administrations administrations in the past have done, really wants to be sh- uh, to make sure that they don't have to actually do anything. It's it's very similar to what you see uh, the the same same uh, role that the U.S. has adopted in the South China Sea and in the East China. In the East China Sea, with uh, China's uh, incursions into these uh, disputed islands, uh, the United States is going to talk a very strong game, and they're going to hope very much that they're not uh, uh, brought—that they're not— their backs aren't put to the wall because there isn't really a plan in place. The Pentagon has many, many plans, of course, and they have options for everything, mm-hmm. but nobody wants any kind of military conflict with China. That's the last thing on on the, on the right. uh, uh, that the U.S. would like right now.
0: So I really thought that she hit the nail on the head there when she said the administration wants to make sure that they don't have to actually do anything.
1: This is very interesting. It has me thinking that as we get to know the different players in Biden's cabinet, that these types of interpreters of Secretary's performance, like what we're seeing right now with Helene Cooper, who has followed the Pentagon so closely and can help, I think, Americans understand who is leading Biden's administration, right? And what is being said and what isn't. And on Polylog, we've been talking about a lot of the same players for so long that it's It's an interesting challenge or exercise to try to see what is being said or not said in interviews with these new people that we don't know that well.
0: Yeah, I really appreciated this panel and their ability to kind of, you know, as experts, look at what was said and try to interpret for the audience what a lot of these vague freaking answers even meant.
1: Yeah, that was missing on State of the Union last week. Probably could have been helpful.
0: Yeah. But uh, again, every time I see one of these interviews, I just want to know, like, Secretary Blinken, why did you go on the show? What were you prepared to actually say? Because it came off so freaking vague and noncommittal.
1: I mean, yes. And that's also why I
0: didn't talk about the Blinken interview last week. Right. Yeah. All right, Naomi, let's go to what stood out to you in journalism this week.
1: So I guess I would say the pressing topics right now are COVID and also I would say COVID slash vaccine distribution and everything around the American Jobs Act or the new infrastructure bill. Any conversation beyond those two topics, I think are really telling of the journalists themselves and how they like to allocate time on their show. And I just wanna note, Margaret Brennan consistently uses her time very strategically to talk about issues that are important, but maybe haven't been front and center. Or you you can kind of think might be a, Coming priority. I just really value kind of those extra one, two, maybe three questions at the end of the interview she has because it's often one of those topics that is kind of you've thought about, but you haven't been thinking a ton about. Take a listen to this question that was brought up to California Superintendent of Schools, Tony Thurman. And it's essentially questioning how kids are really doing after a year of the pandemic.
3: I wanna ask you about the kids as they come back into instruction. Um, You spoke powerfully about your own personal experience uh, growing up uh, as the child of a single mom who you lost at a very young age. There was a study that was published this week talking about the 40,000 children in this country who have lost a parent to COVID-19. 20% of those kids, according to this JAMA study, are African-American. In in California, how do you plan to deal with this particular part of the inequity problem?
7: The first thing we do when our students return is to really check in on their social and emotional well-being, making sure that they have mental health supports. This has been hard on our kids all across the nation. We've seen a high rate of depression and we know that we have to first and foremost provide social emotional supports. Second, you know, with all due respect to the hard work of so many educators trying to support our kids, we, we literally in this country moved into distance learning overnight because we had to keep people safe. And let's face it, education systems weren't built for this. And Mm so with all due respect to those efforts, we know that many of our kids have had unavoidable impacts. So we'll provide them more tutoring, more supports.
1: Secretary Thurman kind of goes on to talk about the types of technology or internet or kind of actual physical resources that children would need to kind of be able to catch up, even if it's just academically. And this is looking at the long-term social, emotional, and physical health of children. And we talk a lot about the long-term effects of COVID in terms of people who have gotten it and maybe are seeing some physical symptoms. Usually these are adults. There's talk sometimes of, you know, there's an increase of children now getting infected with COVID. But I think this is gonna be a really, really important conversation to examine and to really make sure that we have not to bring it back to our early segment, but the infrastructure in our schools and our healthcare settings to really support the needs of kids to emotionally and physically heal from this very challenging time.
0: I mean, this is, I I had never seen this stat before. Of course, it makes sense because so many people died of COVID, but 40,000 children who've lost a parent is just so painful to think about.
1: I did see one that was that there's more, children in New York who have lost a parent due to COVID than had lost a parent in the World Trade Center. And I remember I thought that was pretty powerful. Yeah,
0: in New York City, yeah.
1: Yeah, but 40,000 across the nation is even more gutting. Yeah. And I think just in comparison to what I saw on this week, I thought George Stephanopoulos used his time in really awkward, weird ways. There was a segment a legal panel about the Derek Chauvin murder trial. And I, I do think that trial is hugely important for so many reasons, but the segment itself felt more like court TV about the ins and outs updates of the trial in the past week, as opposed to taking a broader perspective about the importance of this and what it might mean and how this is connected to so many other police shootings that where there have been acquittals. And so I just thought it was it was just awkwardly done. And then Martha Raddatz had a segment talking about an organization that encourages or connects people from with different political beliefs to have a conversation, which you'd think would be kind of like polylog friendly or or like poly like I don't know in line with polylogue values. But it just felt like such a weird use of time on the Sunday shows to do this like fluff piece. And so spending time on this week after spending time on Face the Nation just. It didn't feel nearly as valuable.
0: Yeah, well, that's been my frustration with this week for a while now. It's becoming a real trend. A real, real trend.
1: Brendan, what's your something about journalism that you want to share with us before we close out?
0: So you brought up children, and that was, it's just crazy because we don't often talk about children on the Sunday shows, but that is the topic I'm going to be talking about here, about journalism. And that is about trans issues and their coverage on the Sunday shows, both on Meet the Press and and State of the Union, there was discussion of what happened in Louisiana over this last week. So what happened in Louisiana? So the third of three bills arrived on the governor's desk. This is Republican Governor Asa Hutchinson. And although he signed the previous two, this third one he vetoed. And then the Republican legislature overrode his veto, and it became law. So Meet the Press and State of the Union covered this. Meet the Press spoke with Governor Hutchinson, about his veto about this issue and then state of the union spoke also with governor hutchinson so we have two examples of shows interviewing the man who had approved two of the three bills and then had his veto overridden when he vetoed it vetoed the third so a very interesting discussion conversation but at the center of it are trans children who are often in very vulnerable places Meet the Press, unfortunately, decided to focus on the politics and not the people. And it was, it was just cold. It was cold as ice. Take a listen. Here is Chuck Todd's introduction and first question.
8: One of the weapons Republicans are using with an eye towards retaking power is to tar Democrats uh, on a number of cultural issues. But sometimes Republicans get caught in that crossfire when Arkansas Governor Asa Hutchinson vetoed a bill that would ban gender-affirming treatments for transgender youth The state's veto proof Republican majorities in the House and Senate overrode his veto by substantial margins. In a Washington Post op ed last week, Hutchinson wrote, I'm being attacked by some of uh, my Republican colleagues for not being pure enough on social issues and for vetoing a bill that limited access to health care for transgender youth. Governor Hutchinson joins me now. Governor, welcome back to Meet the Press. I'm curious. This was the third bill targeting Hmm. transgender uh, youth in some form. And the issue in some form that had passed the legislature. Did you veto this third bill because of the specifics of the bill, or was this also, or how much of it was enough already with these bills that seemed to be in search of of a of a problem that didn't exist?
0: I was appalled by this question and this introduction. Literally, Chuck Todd's perspective, the Sunday Meet the Press's perspective on this issue which is targeting a vulnerable minority population, is sometimes Republicans get caught in the crossfire of cultural issues. Oh, is that right? You so,
1: better look out for them. Yeah,
0: so somehow this is written as if Republicans are getting caught in the crossfire, like Republicans are somehow the victims of their own discrimination. Like, that's not what this is about. You know, the question should be about the people who are the target of this bill what it means for those people, and what it means for a political party to target and systematically discriminate against those people, against trans youth, to make their lives worse. And why the hell is this political party so committed to discrimination and hate that they are overriding vetoes by their own governor to do it? But that's not what the question was about. The question was about Republicans getting caught in the crossfire and why are they making these bills on issues that don't even exist. Well, trans youth do exist.
1: Exactly. Well, it's the people exist, right? If you're not focused on the people, you can say that this is like a new issue or a new problem. But like the people have always been here.
0: Exactly. They've always been here. And in our world, finally, people who feel gender dysphoria, where they don't feel comfortable in the gender that they were born in, and don't feel a connection to that, often youth, are able to find a possible way out of it by finding medical treatment. And that is an issue that does exist. A recent study found that close to 2% of high school students identify as transgender. That's a lot of freaking high school students. And these students are often the victims of violence or feel threatened to be victims of violence. In this study that was published by the CDC, 27% of these transgender High school students felt unsafe or at risk going to or from school, 27%. That compares to 7% of cisgendered female and males. Males were just 4.6%. So think about that. 27% versus at a height, 7% for those identifying as as for cisgendered females. Similarly, 35% of transgender high school students are bullied at school. Whereas non-transgender students, it's between 14 and 20 percent. Basically, they are at much higher risk of feeling unsafe going to and from school. Much higher risk at being bullied at school. Literally, one third have been bullied, and much higher risk of attempted suicide, which is again about a third of them. So these are these are this represents a lot of kids, and it also represents kids who are already the target of violence in their day-to-day life. And now they're being targeted by an entire political party and leaders with real political power in their government. But Chuck Todd and Meet the Press think that this is just a political issue. And, and they, they treat these this kinds of questioning as if it's like interesting political choices.
1: Right. And I think this is what kind of drives me crazy is I want to applaud and encourage the Sunday shows to talk about issues that they normally don't talk about that impact people Right, like that is a good thing, but if it's not an area that your team knows about, or you haven't really discussed about, or hasn't been something that's kind of in your show's language, maybe bring an expert on to talk about it first. Maybe to bring a trans rights activist to talk about it first. To start talking about it with a governor of a state that is doing or considering really controversial legislation against this population is hurting the broader dialogue of hey this is important this is something we want to learn more about this is something we want to talk about and you're making it partisan before the issue is even understood
0: but that's the thing like what becomes clear in his further questioning is what's clear on so many of these issues which is the only reason the show's give a damn about the issue is because some political party is giving a damn about the issue. 100%. Like they that is cues, totally accurate. They take their cues from the parties rather than from the people and what they're experiencing and what their life experiences are. Like there, There's no interest in the trans youth in this conversation. The only interest is in why the political party happens to be doing what it's doing. Take a listen to what, again, I think this is a, an interesting question, but there's just... No room for the people who are the victims here. This is Chuck Todd, and I think this helps explain where the show is coming from with this.
11: As a Republican Party, it's Mm -hmm. the principles of limited government, and it's pushing freedom and choice uh, in uh, the free market. Uh, That's what the party is about. Uh, We've got to apply those principles even Mm -hmm. when it comes to the social war.
8: But I'm curious if you're now... If you if you're the voters inside the Republican Party, don't agree with what you said. I want you to put up something Jonathan Last from The Bulwark wrote. He said Republican voters no longer have any concrete outcomes that they want from government. What they have instead is a lifestyle brand. And if you want to move up the ladder within a brand network, you don't do it by governing or making policy. You do it by getting attention. A lot of these issues seem to be designed to get attention. Right. Rather than maybe uh, solve a long term problem problem uh, of governance. No, I think they're
11: well-intentioned. It's just that they're uh, taking us in the wrong direction. And uh, again, restraint is the word. Uh, I don't want to criticize uh, my Republican legislators that I know their heart. Uh, They believe
0: uh, in this. So that quote from the bulwark is actually very interesting. You know, the idea of thinking of the Republican Party as or the Republican voters caring more about lifestyle than governance. I think there one might point to a lot of evidence for that, and that is something of an interesting conversation. But this is all within the framework of a conversation about discriminatory laws. This is like real issues, you know, often life and death issues for trans kids who might attempt suicide if they can't access the treatment they need, and that was just what was passed in Louisiana banning that treatment. State of the Union, on the other hand, took a different approach. Take a listen to the tone and the questions that Jake Tapper brings to his interview with Governor Asa Hutchinson.
5: A lot of Arkansas Republicans are really focused on trans kids and they're targeting them with legislation. Uh, They offered a bill that would ban trans kids from participating in girls' and women's sports. You signed that law, even though you have acknowledged there are no actual cases in Arkansas of trans kids causing any sort of problems on the athletic field. If this is not an actual problem in Arkansas, if there are no female, girl, women, athletes in Arkansas objecting to this, then then what is the end result of this other than demonizing a bunch of already vulnerable kids?
11: Well, anytime you are uh, passing laws to address a problem that currently doesn't exist but you worry about in the future you have a potential of getting it wrong. These are tough areas, tough areas and what we have to do is we can debate them on conservative principles but let's show compassion and tolerance and understanding as we do that and that's the simple message that I think is important for our party and it's more than about trans youth because other people care and so it's symbol, it's a symbolic of our party and the direction we want to go and i want to be broader and not narrower
5: you've said you want to see people look at arkansas as a place of tolerance and diversity you think the legislation you signed is in keeping with that signing a bill that would keep trans girls from participating in sports even though there are no trans girls in arkansas who are trying to participate in sports this is not an issue do you think that sends a signal of tolerance
11: I think it has a broad level of support. Uh, I, I I think that it is a good bill for uh, our state. But again, there are those that uh, express concern that that limits opportunities for trans youth. We want to make sure that they can have opportunities in as many areas as they can. But I want to protect girls' sports.
0: So at the very least, Jake Tapper is acknowledging that there are people who are the victims of this legislation who are being targeted by this legislation and that these supposed intentions of tolerance are the exact opposite of what is achieved by these bills. And there is so much more that Tapper could have gotten into and could have expanded the conversation into, but at least he acknowledges that there are people who exist in this conversation.
1: Yeah, a smidge, but it definitely could be better.
0: Yeah. So it's it's like moments like this that I'm like, thank God we have polylogue. Because there's just so much that could be better about these shows.
1: <laughs> that is a fact. A lot of people were curious as to how what we were gonna do with the new administration. We we're still gonna continue the show and we were like, uh, absolutely. There is so much more to say about media.
0: Yeah, because a lot of what we see on the Sunday shows is indicative of what we see in the broader media sphere.
1: One thousand million percent. Brendan, that takes us to show ratings. I think mine are pretty easy today. I'd say this week is a two and then being nice and I don't think it's quite so bad that it needs to be a one. I think it's a two, not a lot of value, but one good interview, I guess. And Face the Nation, I think I would give a four. Very solid.
0: Well, I think for me, the one that stands out as a pretty good show was State of the Union, as I mentioned earlier. So I think I'm going to give State of the Union a four say that was a good show Mm. i think i'm gonna say state of the union was a very good show i think there were lots of standout moments so i think i'll give that a five this week i think jake tapper is taking things with the appropriate level of seriousness and his job with seriousness which is another important part of it fox news sunday they were just too many missed things that was a poor show so that is a two for fox news and meet the press Ah, you know, it's such a mixed bag because the Blinken interview, I think Chuck Todd did a pretty good job on that. And the panel being all correspondents, that was also really good. But the Asa Hutchinson interview was an abomination. So I'm going to say it was a poor show. That is a two, unfortunately. It was just, you can't not recognize the people who are the victims in that sort of conversation. It's bad.
1: Not great. Not great, Sam.
0: Well, that's it. I, I hate to end on the word it's bad. Uh, I would just say, it could be I could say, oh, well, one thing was really good and one thing was really bad. And so that should be a three. But no, if you're really, really bad, I'm sorry. But it's just going to be a two. It's, it's just just how it goes. I don't feel sorry. It's how it goes. That's it for polylog This week and every week, we encourage you to make your dialogue count. And our dialogue challenge this week, how about something uh, that brings us up after that? Ratings moment.
1: Well, we both talked about fact checks today, Brendan, and that's right. I think I would encourage our listeners to think about what conversations they're in, that they do the clarification if there is some type of misunderstanding or miscommunication or misleading thing that is said. When don't you clarify and kind of think about why or why not that's the case? Because there's definitely reasons why it might not be worth it. Don't get
0: me wrong. Sounds like a very worthy dialogue challenge for this week.
1: If you want to kind of clarify or fact check us on anything, you are welcome to email us at podcast at polylog.com. You can tweet at me at Soto Naomi underscore.
0: You can tweet at me at BeStyle and you can follow the show at Polylog Cast. Thanks everyone. And we will talk with you next week. Bye. Bye.